We all know that parenting is hard. So how do parents with disabilities do it? With creativity and because we know of the value of interdependence. Come hear about ways experts say we can best empower these families. And let's all learn about how parenting can be done differently. I'm your host, Marjorie Onos. And today, my guest is Tammy Backrack. I met Tammy a few years back and I knew her voice needed to be shared. Tammy's doctoral thesis is about stories shared by adult children of parents with intellectual or developmental disabilities. As a child, Tammy saw how her mom, who has an intellectual disability, was treated differently. Yet to her, she was the most loving person in her life. In her research, Tammy wanted to showcase positive stories of families headed by parents with intellectual disabilities to counteract all the negative things that are said about these families. I started the conversation by asking about her family. Enjoy. And don't forget, for more information about where to find the full recording and additional resources, check out the show notes. I have a, a brother and my parents. And as a child, even though my mom, dad, and brother all have various degrees of learning challenges, the disability part wasn't something that was for in my forefront of my mind. Particularly as a child, you have no concept of that at all. You just know that, oh, mom doesn't read very well. She can't help me with homework. Um, that sort of thing. But um, their formal diagnosis you know, now I know what that is. It was um, learning disability or at the time mental retardation. Now it's intellectual disability. My parents lived in a time where institutionalization was still a thing. Thank goodness they kind of were under the radar um, at the time. And then my brother's life and our, our life together expands sort of the beginning of the rights of people with disabilities to even be educated. And so we sort of like lived this change, hopefully a positive change, um, although it's still not necessarily where we would like it to be um, for people with developmental disabilities. So it's been really fun in that way to look back at what we live. Now I'm like, oh, okay, that's why that happened or whatever. But as a child, it's just mom, dad, and Tim. It's very ordinary and boring. And so when people became interested in it. I thought, well, why are they interested? I didn't even get it. It was like, there's really not a story here. It's only after I realized that people thought it was odd that you start to beginning to, to wonder, well, what is unique about our family? They would see it as a, a negative or a problem. But the only thing I did realize was that we I had an aunt who was very involved and, um, Involved to the extent, supportive in a lot of ways, but controlling in a lot of ways as well. And so my parents had lost their rights to make, be the decision-making uh, parent for us. And so that was unusual. Um, I didn't question it at the time, but you know, looking back, I realized that took a toll on my family, my parents' relationship. And I don't think necessarily the way I saw my mom, but I ended up kind of playing a protective role 
because she would she was not always treated well by her older sister um, in, in a rather demeaning way. Um, and it wasn't until I was older that I realized it was because of my mom's intellectual disability that she could do that to her, that she could kind of be victimized in that way. And it's kind of weird because this is someone I love, you know, loved and supported us. And yet there was this tension between um, being kind of unkind based on my mom's struggles in some ways. But so ordinary, really ordinary um, childhood in many, many ways, but had that extra layer of kind of contention in a way about who's in charge or who's in control and my mom having to pay play more more passive role. Okay. Do you want to share a little bit about like specific stories maybe that uh, you think are, would be interesting to us? One is as I got older, like teenage, then you kind of become more aware of the, the social norms around things, right? And you begin to evaluate your family against other families that you visit and that sort of thing. And um, it was about that point that I realized, oh, my my aunt is rather ashamed of, or maybe I wish we shouldn't, was told not to invite people over to the house. And there was this feeling of like, it's not okay, or you should not invite people over. And at first I thought, well, my mom's not the, the best housekeeper. <laughs> Maybe it was that. Um, but now I think there was, there was more to it at that. In high school, you're trying to kind of fit in and, and all. But so we just didn't have people over that was discouraged and, and we didn't. All along, though, I realized that there's a sense of protection of my mom. And I was always, I loved her. She was the, probably the most loving, nurturing mom you could want, which was really interesting because I have these two kind of moms. You know, I had my mom who, you know, would just do the world for you and for anybody. And then I had my aunt who was also very kind and loving, but she had a pretty big temper and she was, you know, more volatile and a little more unpredictable actually, um, but highly intellectual. So, it was like you could kind of see the comparison. And then I remember thinking, you know, when you become a mom yourself, you know, which mom are you going to emulate? And I kind of absorbed both moms, but my parenting style, I hope my children think is more like their Nana, which they, you know, of course, I have four kids and, and grandchildren now. So they all, Nana is a big central part of their life. It's very interesting to hear from, you know, the child and to sort of say, like, you know, my mom gave me a lot and gave me like, you know, warmth and kindness and love mm -hmm. um, and and a lot of qualities that I want to emulate in my own parenting, which I think is is a, a beautiful message. So do you want to expand a little bit uh, more in terms of that relationship between your aunt and your mom and how that played out? in reality? Like, how did your parents, for example, lose custody? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting story. And there's a, some mystery around it a little bit. But um, my mom, as a girl there, she, gosh, this would have been in the 50s, went to a class for the title of the class, we even had a little paperwork on it is the the class for retarded children. That was the name of the class. And my mom reflects back that they didn't teach me anything. They just let us color all day, you know, 
And then you fast forward and my mom's mom um, died. My grandmother died when she was 12. And so then she goes to a new place um, and lives with a sister in Colorado. And they have no special education, nothing. So she just starts in junior high and high school. And it's a disaster, disaster. You know, so she, but she loses her label at that point. There is no label. Um, and then somehow she... She ends up moving to Washington with another sister who's a little bit older than she is. And they end up finding and enrolling her in a work program with Goodwill. And that's where she met my dad. And she did that for a little while and then she began a family. And so she stopped doing that. And again, she stopped having a label. Again, once she moved away, there wasn't any kind of social workers that that kind of carry your case like they do now. Um, so again, she was just a woman in the community having children, you know? um, probably thankfully, right? But yeah. without any sort of support, she ended up having some medical problems. And my family, of course, wasn't very well to do. So really having good doctors and, and people to take a look at that and good medical care was a challenge. She ended up getting ill and with a thyroid condition and being hospitalized. And um, my mom and dad's relationship was a bit rocky at that time when she had two little kids. My brother was just, I want to say, nine months old and I was three. So in, you know, came my aunt to kind of save the day. And my mom's in the hospital. She was there for three months. And my aunt came in um, from California and basically took us. She kidnapped us, really. Um, and she'll even say that. I kidnapped you guys and took you to California. And my dad was like, you know, what happened? Where my, Where's my kids? And my aunt went to um, the courts and said, my sister's ill. She's in the hospital. She got temporary guardianship without my parents ever being talked to, called no signatures, no showing up at court, no nothing. She was just given guardianship of my brother and I. And wow. one thing I, I think of now, looking back at all of that and looking at some of the documents, they were it was it was called temporary guardianship. But I don't it never became temporary. It became permanent. Mm -hmm. And I don't know my parents probably didn't realize they could even contest that and I don't know if they if that would have worked or not if they had but it, it in effect operated as losing all parental rights and decision making she had papers the whole time she would give them to the courts and doctors had full rights as our parent and my parents didn't and they never mm -hmm. went to court there was never an allegation of anything against them except my mom was hospitalized for that time period. And then when she came back out of the hospital, she moved to California to be with her children again. Yeah. yeah. And so she sacrificed a lot of yes. what she wanted to do and her ability to make any sort of decisions or live an adult life, kind of, because she wanted to keep her kids and family intact to the best of her ability. Yeah. That's a pretty big... Um show of love right there and there, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. To be able to sort of say, like, I don't have many choices, but I'll make sure that I'm there for, for yeah. my kids in the best way 
that I know how. Right. It's a great representation of a lot of things that we've seen in research also in terms of parents with disabilities not knowing that they have rights or how right. to fight for their rights or how to go to court or, or mm-hmm. the, the unfairness that can be just in the context of sort of understanding just how the legal system works. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not accessible um, mm-hmm. for, many, for many reasons. One, economically, you have to have resources, or at least that's the, the view that most people see is, well, I don't have the resources and the, the money to take anyone to court or to file anything or hire an attorney to be an advocate for me. Um, and not being able to navigate or read that sort of information or know what your rights are is a huge, huge disadvantage. Yeah. Both my mom and dad feel like, well, she was able to provide these economic things for you. And so we appreciate that. And, and maybe in the long run, it was okay and it was worth it. Yeah. But it, it, did, it was a cost to them to yeah. have that kind of support. Yeah. I was wondering also, like in terms of, you know, sort of that relationship your mom and and your aunt how did it look like in like day to day were you living with your parents were you in the same house as them were you living with your aunt and they would come and visit or can you describe a little bit what that looked like um so the majority of my life i lived with my mom in a home um that she that was owned by my aunt the house and my parents lived in that home for a few years, and then they separated. So my parents end up getting a divorce. They will both say significantly because of the loss of control over their family and being able to, to make decisions. And these are decisions like, can we go camping next weekend? No, because the children will miss church and that's not allowed. And so even those simple kind of things. So we all lived in the same community. and. I lived with my parents or then my mom and my aunt and uncle lived uh, a couple of miles away, but they would check in on how we were doing. And often they would also provide transportation, particularly after my dad um, was no longer living in the home. My mom didn't drive. And so if we needed transportation to church or to school or that sort of thing, then it would be my um, aunt or uncle who would provide that transportation. So simple decisions about clothing I could wear, what school I went to, if we could miss church or not miss church, we'd have to get permission to go visit. You know, any sort of thing was really controlled by my by my aunt. And then she provided financial resources to us and kind of paid the bills for my mom, who would struggle with that kind of thing at that time. Again, she was a relatively young woman at that point, and there were no support agencies. My mom didn't have those kind of um, supports, so she was only relying on an aunt to do that kind of thing if she needed it. Now we know that she really probably didn't need it. You could, you know, she kind of goes to pay her bills, you know, now. You know, she just goes there and does it, and it's fine. Um, And she's gained a lot more confidence now that she's kind of out of under um, that protection of my aunt, in a way, she's learned a lot of, and she's a very capable woman in so many, in so many ways. And then she works around her 
areas of weakness, just like we all do, right? We just kind of figure out how to get around that thing. Um, But yeah, that was kind of their relationship. Even now, I think my mom holds a lot of the negative feelings about her sister. She's passed several years ago now, but um, Yeah. yeah, it was a stressful, stressful time. But that was our kind of day to day was mostly mom. And if something happened um, where we thought mom was going to get into trouble because something happened, like if we got injured, then my aunt would just come unglued. It was always going to be my mom's fault. Even if it was we were playing and we're kids. (laughs) My brother one time, he you know, had a skateboard in the house and it went through the sliding glass window and shattered the window. Uh, He wasn't really hurt, but it was a thing. And then we would kind of conspire to hide certain things from my aunt because we just knew my mom would get it. (laughs) Yes. We were co-conspirators in some ways. So I could see that. Uh uh (laughs) I could see how that could happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In your story, what I find amazing, which I think also is is unfortunately happens often or too often still now, is that your parents didn't sort of like lose guardianship or their the control over you and your brother because of the disability. It was something else. Mm-hmm. Your aunt was awarded like temporary custody or guardianship. And then it was never returned. And we've seen that also in research where a mom would lose temporary custody and then she could never sort of be good enough, you know, as an example to to have the children return. Yeah. Um, to me, that's something that's very striking that we've seen in research and that's highlighted in your story. Yeah, I, I think, I guess my comment to that would be, it seems unfortunate still the case that a label of intellectual disability trumps everything else. It's like people kind of just fixate on that and what they think that means for the person. And until the person can prove all of their stereotypes wrong, they aren't seen as anything else but intellectually impaired. And I think that wow, are we missing out on so much of humanity and, you know, really those relationships with with a people and maybe over-provide support, over-control, over-minimize their capacity when we stereotype folks and just pigeonhole. And most of the time that is based on what, you know, special educators or other people have written, psychologists have written about intellectual disability not really through relationships with people with intellectual disabilities either. So that medicalization of the category becomes uh, hyper-focused on, you know, versus who they are and what their gifts are. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So you have had those lived experiences, obviously, like all your life. Mm-hmm. How did you end up sort of like doing the auto uh, ethnography? And then you also met other children uh-huh. of parents with uh, intellectual disabilities. And how did you meet them and how those uh-huh. conversations were uh, when you actually met them and, and interviewed them? 
So I, I, as I mentioned, it was through my PhD program that I began reading literature, and some of the literature was old, or it was about the time that I grew up, and so it was there was really not the voice of children present. It was really just the authorities talking about the risk factors for children and, and those kind of things. Um, there wasn't some of that. There wasn't really even an advocacy for parents. It was just kind of you know, written in a very negative tone. So, but as I began reading, I thought, well, this has been my experience and it's different than what I'm seeing in the literature, but is our family just kind of the odd one, you know, is it, or, and I didn't know other people um, who were raised by parents with intellectual disabilities. I knew one other woman who worked for an agency that I um, did and, and her experience was more similar to mine. So I thought, well, that would be an interesting research project to take a look at. Maybe our family is unique. So I reached out to our regional center, which is the the case managers, and asked if they could help me find families and adults, because I really wanted to look at um, kind of that retrospective looking back. Now that they were adults, how, how did they view their childhood? How did they view their relationship with their parent and the supports they received and all of the things that we just talked about? So I was able to find four other individuals who agreed to do, you know, many, many, you know, interviews with me um, and share. And it was so much fun. I've always loved to hear other people's stories. And they varied in age range because you know, still in the U.S. at least, I read things in other countries and it appears as though there's more freedom for people with intellectual disabilities to have children. It's still pretty rare in the U.S. to even think about people with intellectual disabilities getting married or having a family is almost this taboo, terrible thing to even mention because, goodness, how would we do that? (laughs) Each of them talked about their moms as moms, not really as people with intellectual disabilities. I mean, they obviously saw their parents' limitations, and many of them knew that they had these supports and they needed some supports. It was interesting to find the common threads that we all had was that the relationship sort of trumped that label, that sense of protectiveness of you know, we're going to be there for our moms. We look forward to our moms being grandmas and relying on them as grandmas. And they, they all had a view of a long-term relationship that was really positive with their parent and didn't give mom any slack for her disability either, you know, so, which is great. But, um, you, you saw some common threads of the support was important, appropriate supports. They all had some sort of scare about custody. Each of them had a sense of resiliency as well. Like they saw something about their life experience as being positive, sometimes hard, sometimes stressful, but making them better people in a way. So their outlook was very interesting to me. And I loved the their quotes, which are in the article. It's my desire to put forth their words as much as possible, because I think you can't, you can't even do it justice. Otherwise, um, it just, when you summarize, you don't get it. But 
some of the things that I've seen about this, the study that I did that's different, though, from some other studies is where there was support, it was consistent support. It was family. It was either family driven or it was family centered. And the two participants who worked with the same agency talked about the same actual direct service staff being consistent for long periods of their life, which isn't always the case in, in that field. Often there's a high turnover. So in, in all of those, you started by saying, like, I wanted to know if my family was unique mm-hmm. in comparison to what you had read. Mm-hmm. What would be your answer now that you've done this? I don't think it was very unique. I don't. I don't. I mean, at least the other four participants had shared a lot of the same experiences that I shared. And, and a lot of the danger and anxiety wasn't based on the parent's intellectual disability. It was reaction to that or right. the custody issues or the, you know, and even when they talked about, well, we ended up having to step up and, and be more responsible um, in some ways, because I think there's a theme of that where the, the children take on a little more more responsibility. Not that they become the parent, because I didn't see that in any of an art stories, but they take on, oh, they can drive now, so they're going to drive the family around. They can be ex- go to the doctor and kind of explain things or um, go to the school if they have younger children or younger siblings, that kind of thing. They saw that not as a negative. At the time, it might have been a bummer <laughs> when they were kids, but looking back reflectively, they think, no, that, that kind of kept me on track that taught me how to be an adult and give me confidence in my ability to to do things um, and not, you know, fool around and get into trouble. Yeah. And I think also what's important is to always sort of put it in context. I think that depending on our circumstances, we have to step up or or not, you know, at different Mm -hmm. times Mm -hmm. um, because of our living circumstances, because we're a family and as a, family members you know sometimes we all need to chip in yeah yeah right and even even like being kind of a um when we talk about sometimes i would make phone calls for my mom and get the information from a doctor or you know send that prescription over to the pharmacy or whatever that's not any different than some of our families who come where the kids speak english and the parents don't and the child becomes the translator kind of or that go between or second language families so it dawned on me like that's pretty much the same you know as my experience it doesn't carry the same stigma though right as an intellectual disability does but it's similar so if we were to turn to to the future a little bit Mm -hmm. what is something that you would like to see happen or be done in research in this field in the next, let's say, five to 10 years? If I had a magic wand and could just change people's perceptions, it's not just with folks with intellectual disabilities or parents, but I think it even starts in our schools. We still hyper-focus on the label and medicalization, whether you're a doctor or you're a special education teacher or you're a social worker. And until we address the stigma around the label of disability, we need a shift 
our whole thinking in a way. And, and I know that that is gradually happening. I hope it's happening that we begin to see people as people, not as separate people or semi people <laughs> because of some particular label or characteristic that they have. We value one kind of being and quality of the being versus recognizing the disposition of people, the important, most important characteristic of them, not you know whether they can read Shakespeare or even help their children with homework. <laughs> like there, there should be and could be other people that can step into that role. So there's just a, a shift, I guess, in, in, our, in our field, we would call that the social model of disability, right? Looking at really analyzing what we're doing, not focusing only on the person, but, but what are the supports doing to make their job harder, their life harder, their children's life harder, and what can we do to make it easier <laughs> by asking them, by you know being a partner with them, not superior to them? And if that shift of thinking happens, it, it, it potentially could affect education, our legal system, our social workers' views. Um, but to see families as an asset that needs to be supported, maybe, Maybe not. Maybe they're doing just fine. Just leave them be and be more of an advocate for them versus a uh, control for them. Paperwork, you know, is just that's not going to be their thing. Or sometimes time management isn't their thing. You know, like making, OK, you have to schedule an appointment that's three months out. That, that falls off my radar sometimes. You know? So what, what can we do to support that? you know, and, and address some of the issues around poverty and inequality in those areas as well, which obviously becomes a, a risk factor, in my opinion, greater than having intellectual disabilities, <laughs> or yes. could, could, depending on, on your community and the supports yeah. that are there. In listening to you, I would add sometimes, you know, as professionals, as researchers, as people who do not have an intellectual disabilities, to just be humble a little bit more. Because mm -hmm. um, we all struggle for different reasons. Our intelligence doesn't protect us from making mistakes, for doubting ourselves, right. for struggling sometimes. And I, I loved listening to you, to your story. I felt and I heard all the love that you have for your mom for your dad, for, you know, what they, they gave you and how they made you you. Mm -hmm. um, I also felt the love from, from your aunt, even though, you know, it's a little bit more complex. I really thank you for sharing this part of you, your research. You know, I think that um, this is how we, we hopefully change opinions, you know, by sharing stories like yours. So I really want to thank you for the time. Thank you. It's been a a pleasure to share it. I appreciate the opportunity very much. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.